0: I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Well, let me welcome you to ECC. Everybody else has so far. It's good to have you back if you're a student from last year. Good to have you here if you're here for the first time. And um, I think I'll also take the opportunity to say something about us. That's all right. You may notice in your bulletin, if you have one at the front or the top of the bulletin, there's a phrase. It's our mission statement. We want to be a church that's reflecting the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ in a college town. If you're listening throughout this year, actually we've talked about trying to abbreviate the phrase. And here's the abbreviation. Extending grace and truth. That's what we're trying to do. Is to extend the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to everyone. In this town and around the world with our missionaries and to everyone we know. Because that's, The central part, the heartbeat of the gospel, is extending grace and truth to everybody. So as a result, or because of who we are, maybe it's a better way to say it. You're not going to hear a preacher up here Sunday after Sunday shouting and spitting and stomping about sin. Especially the sins of the world. There's lots of sin out there in the world And inside the church. Instead of shouting about sin, which I hope I don't do, I know the other guys don't do, instead of doing that, we take the scripture itself very seriously. And we allow the scripture to be kind of a searchlight, or maybe a, a mirror into our hearts. And as we examine and study the scripture, truth is revealed. And the truth that's revealed gives us tremendous insights for life. But also the truth that's revealed tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that we're sinners. Oh, we take sin seriously, but we don't shout about it and point to the other. What we try to do is understand the nature of sin in our lives and then the deep nature of grace. And we think, well, we believe, that if we understand grace and truth in our lives, then we're prepared, and only then are we prepared to extend grace and truth to others. So, welcome, BCC. We're glad you're here. We're doing our best to extend grace and truth to you and everyone we meet. We're starting a new series today, it's called Encounters with Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, uh, each sermon, each week is really kind of standalone. You don't have to have been here the week before to connect the dots, so to speak. Every week we're going to look at another encounter with Jesus that someone else had. And we're going to learn from those encounters with Jesus. As a matter of fact, they're they're almost like portraits, these encounters, or pictures, or snaps. Shots, I would say Snapchat, but the server hasn't been wiped. You know, (laughs) um, the the pictures are there. (laughs) Sorry. The the pictures are there. (laughs) They're historical. We can return to them. They don't disappear. So each week we return to them. They're there for us to look at. And when we look at them, we find out remarkable things. Today, the encounter with Jesus is actually multiple encounters. Uh, For the most part, each week following this, it'll be an encounter somebody had with Jesus. But today I want to show you several encounters that primarily John the Baptist had with Jesus. And we read about one of them, but that's not the only one. I want to begin with the first one. It's a strange one different than any other it actually begins before Jesus is conceived it begins with a man at a temple called Zachariah he was a priest and it was his responsibility on one particular Sabbath to go in and light the incense altar he went into the temple to do his responsibility to light that incense And as he was lighting the incense at the altar, poof, an angel appeared. Like, I was thinking about that and trying to figure out what would that be like. You know, would it be like I'd come in here midweek to do something? Rearrange the furniture? Check on a leaky roof? (laughs) Maybe pray for the church and poof, there's an angel. I would freak out. I don't know if I would run or if I just like drop down or if I would put my hands over my head. It never happened to me before. I'll, I'll let you know when it happens, what I do. I don't know what I would do. I know I'd be scared to death just like Zachariah was scared to death. The angel had a message for him. He said, Zachariah, your wife Elizabeth wants to have a child and so do you. And I'm going to give you one. your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And Zachariah said, what? At this point, he had picked himself up off the floor. He said, you've got to be kidding me. We're too old for that stuff. And the angel said, no, you're going to have a son. Matter of fact, Zachariah, since you didn't believe me when I first told you you were going to have a son, for the next nine months, you won't be able to talk. You're going to lose your voice. Zechariah is overwhelmed and he goes back out to meet the people. And by the way, the people outside are really worried because Zechariah had been in there a long time. And when you run into an angel, you don't hurry up his business, right? So Zechariah is sticking around and they're wondering what happened to him. Maybe he died in the temple. Zechariah comes back out. He's probably white as a sheet. And he looks at the people and he tries to talk and nothing comes out. And he asks for a pen and paper or quill, ink, parchment, And he writes on it, what had happened. Obviously I can't speak. And for nine months he writes his messages. Well, his wife is overwhelmed and so grateful. And of course, she does become pregnant. And about six months into her pregnancy, something else happens. It's dramatic. It's another angel visit. These angels, they're doing great things. This one shows up to Mary and to Joseph. You know this story better, right? And Joseph gets the word that his wife Mary is going to have a child. And Joseph says, wait a minute, we haven't done that. We're not even married. And the angel said, oh no, it's not like that. This one's different. (laughs) This one is going to be implanted into her womb. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon her. And in her womb is going to be conceived the Son of God, the Messiah, and names go on from then on out about who this Jesus is. The angel tells the same thing to Mary. And of course, Mary and Joseph are excited like young parents, and especially Mary, she can't contain herself. When she hears the news, she immediately goes to her relative Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who shouldn't have a baby. She doesn't text ahead. She couldn't do that. She doesn't call. She doesn't send an email. She just shows up. And based on the the description that's given, Elizabeth has no idea. Mary shows up in Elizabeth's town. And the text tells us, as soon as Mary's greeting fell on the ears of Elizabeth, the baby inside Elizabeth's womb jumped for joy. Who's the baby? John the Baptist. Why does he jump? It's the first encounter with Jesus. Jesus in the womb of Mary. And John the Baptist leaps for joy. There's something about that story. If you read it, it's exciting. It's exciting faith. These two women who never were going to have children, at least not Elizabeth and Mary, certainly not this way. They're having children. And they're so excited. They sing songs. They say prophetic things that become a part of our our text called the Bible. And even John, six months in the womb, is excited. He jumps for joy. This is exciting faith. You might even call it infant faith. Everything is great. Let me stop and make a parallel, which I'll do with each of these episodes. It reminds me of a a new conversion. Reminds me of someone who finds Jesus for the first time. Usually it's told in the story of an adult who's not even aware of jesus and then encounters jesus sometimes it's an adult who's grown up in the church and wanders away, and then has a conversion experience sometimes it's someone who's much younger but they have this encounter with jesus and it's incredible it's exciting they're all about it they can't stop talking about jesus they can't stop feeling jesus's presence they can't stop sharing with everybody this relationship they have with jesus it's like It's like they have this constant spiritual buzz. Jesus is always with them. It's an exciting faith. And frequently it's early. And you know, don't you, if that's been your story, that it doesn't stay that way. You couldn't sustain it. You couldn't keep that level of emotion up. The second encounter with Jesus is the one we just read about. Actually, it's preceded by a bit of an encounter. John sees Jesus coming one day when he's shouting and preaching and telling people about the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus shows up. And Jesus says to John, oh, by the way, they're cousins. Surely they've met each other before, you know, at a family picnic or something. Did they have those back then? It wasn't on the 4th of July, but, you know, they probably got together. Jesus shows up and John's baptizing for repentance or remission of sins. And Jesus walks up and says, hey, John, we don't hear this, but hey, cuz, you know. (laughs) No, it's not, hello, John, I have something for you to do. I want you to baptize me. And John says, hold it, hold it now. He doesn't say this, but it's implied Why do you want to be baptized? I'm talking about repentance and remission of sins. Why do you want to be baptized? That's another topic for another time. But here's what he actually says. No way. I can't baptize you. You've got to baptize me. He says in another place, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and take the laces off his sandals by the way there was a rabbinic tradition that said that a master and a disciple had a special relationship and the disciple should serve the master and the disciple could do anything for the master except remove his shoes in other words even a disciple according to the protocol could not stoop that low and John using that image says I'm not even worthy to be down there I'm lower than the sandals I'm lower than dirt compared to you Jesus Jesus uh, he has a little authority in his voice he just has this way about him and, and he says yeah go ahead and baptize me anyway John and John says okay sir I will so John baptizes Jesus. And you know the rest of the story, right? Out of heaven comes this beautiful dove and lands on Jesus' head. And out of heaven comes a voice that says, This is my son in whom I well please listen to him. And then everything breaks loose. John's already a fiery prophet. He already understands what he believes. But now, now John says, and this is where our text ticks kicks in now John says when he sees him another time the day later apparently walking across the landscape he points to him with everybody listening and he says there goes the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world I wonder what people thought I wonder if John even knew what he said Jesus hadn't said that about himself yet at least not according to the text John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit identifies something about Jesus and connects it to the Passover lamb and said that's the Passover lamb there's the lamb of God all of Israel listen that's him now that's confident faith John is all worked up in his sermon he's absolutely confident about what he believes It's not just excitable faith, although he's very excited, it's now confident faith. And I'm going to tell the world, I understand it in my head, and I understand it in my heart, and everybody's going to hear it. You've probably experienced or seen that kind of faith, right? It's the kind of faith that's all jazzed up. It's the kind of faith that's absolutely confident. That absolutely has the answers. The kind of faith that says nothing can penetrate this armor of faith that's mine. I know what that kind of faith's like. It's called Sunday morning faith for a preacher. That's me. Stand up here and pontificate, say exactly what I mean. Sometimes not exactly, but I try to say exactly what I mean. Utterly confident in my words. I feel frequently the very wings of the Spirit. I can't explain it. You wouldn't understand it unless you did it. There's something going on. That's Sunday. But then Monday arrives. And it's like the air has been sucked out of the balloon. (laughs) I mean, I haven't given up. I don't disbelieve anything I said, but my confidence level is not near as high as it is right here. It's just a fact of life. And so somebody asked me a question on Monday or Wednesday, and I have some answers. And sometimes I'm confident, but never quite as much as here. Confident faith is like that, right? You're at the top of your game. You know what it is that you believe and you're confident about it and you're ready to share it with people and convince them. And John was there. That's an experience of faith that I hope you've had. Sometimes these experiences of faith, by the way, um, these prophetic moments come with unusual characters. John was kind of an unusual character, right? If you don't know that he he wore like animal skins only never real clothes and he ran around probably without taking a bath and he ate locust and wild honey and he lived in the wilderness. Not everybody did that. Confident prophets are often just kind of odd. I mean in the Old Testament it was that way. Man, we had some confident prophets that were really just downright weird. Um one confident prophet get this he actually laid on one side for 390 days, prophesying from one side to tell the people of Israel that judgment was coming. That's a confident prophet. You're going to endure that kind of ridicule, look like that kind of idiot in order to get your message through. You know what else he did? Any children? Cover their ears. Um, he laid on his side. He cooked his own food. You know how he cooked his own food? Over an open fire. The fuel was human excrement. I'm not making this up, folks. Another portion of his food, a different portion of his food, was cooked by fire with the fuel of cow manure. In the public square, while he's prophesying about God bringing judgment on the people. Now that's one confident slash weird kind of guy. That's not the only one. How about Isaiah? You know what Isaiah did one time? Confident under their inspiration of the Holy Spirit? (laughs) He went around and prophesied for three years buck naked. I'm not honest. Look it up yourself. Chapter 20 in Isaiah. He went around and prophesied naked. It's like if I did that, the board of elders would call a special meeting at the end of the first day. Right? It's not happening. Don't try to visualize it. The point is, that's just strange, right? (laughs) That's just strange. Isaiah prophesying naked. But it's incredibly bold, confident prophecy, right? Have you been there? Have you felt so confident about your message? The devil himself couldn't have driven you away? Maybe you have. Or maybe you will. There's another stage of faith, um, and I don't mean they come in sequences. As I'll mention later, they come in cycles. It's what I call tested faith. First, you've got exciting faith. It's like infancy. Then you have this confident faith where you just know this is the Word of God. And then you've got tested faith. This, again, is an encounter that John has with Jesus, except this encounter is vicarious. See, John's in a prison. He's been speaking about unrighteousness. He's called out the king himself. The king who's a part of Israel's monarchy. The king who should be leading a righteous life. We're not talking about division of church and state here anymore like we know it. This was different. The king was supposed to be a righteous leader according to the laws of Moses. And he wasn't. And John was calling him out, and the king threw him in prison. And John, with death looming, pulls aside. I think this is so interesting. He pulls aside just two of his many disciples. Hey, you, come here. And you, I want you to come with me. Pulls him aside, and he says, do me a favor, my friends. Go find Jesus. Jesus. And when you find him, ask him this question. Are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one sent by God? Or should we be looking for another one? You know, some people want to say that those two disciples were set up by John so that they would ask the question so they could be sure? I don't think so. I think John's in prison. We know that. I think John's discouraged. Probably so. And I think John's scared, or at least he ought to have been. And his faith being tested. He was so bold in the wilderness. He was so excited, even six months in the womb. He'd been surrounded by this overwhelming grace and truth of God, and now he's in the middle of it, about ready to get his head chopped off. And he sends the disciples out and says, Please, please, Jesus, tell me I didn't miss it. I love what Jesus does. He sends back this message, and I want to read it for you. He sends back this message to John through his disciples. He says, go back to John and report to him what you have heard and seen. In other words, John, I want you to believe the witnesses. Go back and report to him what you've heard and what you've seen. And that is this. The blind receive the sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed are you, John, if you don't fall away on account of me. Man, what a message! It was just enough. Okay, so can you can you go with me to the prison for a moment? Suppose it's you. What kind of message would you like to have heard from Jesus? Let me remind you of something. John could probably quote most of the Psalms. He sang them in the synagogue growing up. He knew them inside and out like we know the songs we sing on Sunday morning. And I have a suspicion. John wanted to hear Jesus repeat these words from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest on the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Surely I will save Him from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. This God will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. John, a thousand will fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but He won't come near you. You only see the punishment of the wicked, If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is your refuge, no disaster will come near your tent, John. For He will command His angels concerning you. They'll guard you. They will lift you up in their hands so that your foot won't even dash a stone, John. You'll be able to tread on the lion and the cobra You'll trample the great lion and the serpent, John, because I love you. I will rescue you. I will protect you because you acknowledge my name. John, if you call on me, I'll answer. And I'll be with you in trouble. I'll deliver you and I'll honor you. I will show you long life, John. And I'll show you my salvation. I'd like to have heard that from Jesus if I was John, but John didn't. All Jesus said was, "I want you to remember what you know. I want you to believe what you hear. and I want you to hang on. faith. That's tested faith. And if you haven't been there, someday you will be there. One classic Christian author uh, described this kind of faith as the dark night of the soul. St. John of the Cross. You may have heard of him before. Let me just read you an excerpt from what he said said at a certain point in your spiritual journey God will draw a person from the beginning stages of faith to the more advanced stages of faith and at this stage of faith the person will engage in all kinds of religious activities to grow more and more in their spiritual life and then he said such souls are likely to experience what's called the dark night in which a person loses all the pleasure that they once experienced in their devotional life. Remember the exciting faith? This happens when God wants to purify them and move them on to greater heights. So after a soul has been converted by God, that soul is nurtured and caressed by the Spirit, like a loving mother who cares for and comforts the infant, feeding it spiritual milk. Such souls will be filled with great delight at this stage. They'll begin praying with urgency and perseverance. They will engage in all kinds of religious activities because of the joy they experience in them. Not the duty. But there will come a time where God will bid them to grow deeper. He will remove the previous consolation from the soul in order to teach it Virtue, and to prevent it from developing vice. These folks will become discontented with God and what God gives them because they do not experience the consolation that they believe they deserve. They begin reading books, many books, in performing many religious tasks of piety in an attempt to gain more and more spiritual consolation. And here's what happens, he says. Their hearts grow attached to the feelings they get from their devotional life. And they focus on the effect and not the substance of devotion. Summary, God allows us to go the, through the dark night of the soul. Just like John did. And that, my friends, is an experience with Jesus. It doesn't feel like it. It feels like your blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is absent and He is Not. He's distant. And He's letting you walk by faith. There's all kinds of times when this happens, right? You can go through catastrophic events in your life. And you cry out to God and it seems like He's not answering your prayers. That could be your dark night of the soul. You could go through some sort of physical pain and suffering and you ask for God just to heal you and He does it. That could be your dark night of the soul. Or you could just walk into a dark night of the soul doing everything you've always done to pursue your Savior and still you come up dry. And that could be a dark night of the soul. It's part of the experience of faith. I want to suggest, or maybe I should say predict, that some of you here this morning, about midway through your semester, it may be your first semester, or it may be your seventh, you're going to allow, even if they didn't intend it, university professors to suck the joy of your faith right out of you. And there's going to be days that you're gonna be like John and you're gonna say, oh my, please tell me, he's the one. Don't despair when those moments come, my friends. Okay, don't, I know it feels like despair, but don't stay there. When you're there, talk to someone, borrow their faith, believe deeply what you know you believe and hang on because god's going to come through it's a testing time it's difficult but it's important i want to reiterate something i don't think these are stages of faith in terms of life stages I don't think that everybody who gets down near the end like John comes to a crisis in their faith. Maybe, maybe not. I think it's more like cycles of faith. I think you go through these things over and over again and there's going to be another time where Jesus seems so sweet and close to you that you'll be absolutely overwhelmed with excitement. And there's going to be times when you're absolutely confident in your faith and you want to be the apologist and the theologian and the prophet all in one wherever you are telling everybody about Jesus because you know it's true. And sometimes, if you're like me, have you experienced this before? You see somebody going through the, the excitable stage of faith, and you want to say, hey, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. It's not always going to be that way. Take a deep breath. Kind of like, that's not really helpful. Um, they need to be able to experience that joy. It would be like if I walked up to a new parent, you know, and they just had a child. And everything's wonderful. And the baby still smells good except for those other incidental things. And everybody's cooing and on over the baby and they are and they're just in love with it. And I'll walk up and I say, hey, enjoy it for now. He's going to turn into a teenager someday. That, that's really not a good pastoral move, right? I shouldn't do that. But it's true. <laughs> if you let him live, <laughs> they're going to break your heart, Right? But in that infant stage, what do you want to do for that parent? You want to join their joy. Let them have it. Life's too short not to enjoy it. So when you're going through that stage, or your friend's going through that stage, and you're not there, don't bring them down. Let them enjoy the excited nature of faith. But you know, don't you? And they will know eventually, if they don't already know, that it won't last forever. They'll go through another stage. And maybe it'll be that stage of confidence, absolute confidence. They just know what's right and they're ready to say it to everybody. Can I, um, this is a great Sunday to start off on the wrong foot, I guess, but can I say something that might be mildly offensive to most of you who are in college? There's, (laughs) There's a lot of times, my friend, seriously, that when you're in college, you are so confident about your faith and that you have the answers. You're going to save the world. Man, I love that. That's why we love it when you come back. You're going to change everybody for Jesus. You know what's going on. And you could be so annoying and absolutely offensive in your confident faith that you could do some damage. But for the most part, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let you be confident. Because we need confidence. And I'm going to look at your confidence and I'm going to say, thank God for that confidence. And every once in a while, if you ask me, I might say something. And every once in a while, somebody else who's not there in that stage might say something. You know who you can, in your most confident moments, do the most damage to? Your, your parents. Especially if you've come to recognize Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior in a dramatically personal way. And you've grasped a hold of a truth that you've never had before. You want to evangelize your parents. If they had the kind of faith I've got now, my life would have been easier. (laughs) You'll have confident faith. Enjoy it and speak it. Sometimes it'll be a little off-kilter and somebody will adjust it. But enjoy it. And then there's going to come the day as a matter of fact, if you live as long as some of us have in this walk of faith, there'll be many of these cycles, many of these days, where you're going to experience a dark night of the soul. And you're going to think, oh my. Is it, is it for real? Um... I've been at this thing for 25 years. This thing is standing up in front of people and proclaiming boldly and confidently. And I tell you, my friends, there's been some dark days where I've said, oh man, I hope it's true. That's just the experience of faith. You can and you will, by God's grace, walk through that. It will test you to the depths of your soul. And it will strengthen you and make you like sterling gold. It can happen. You just have to stay with it, borrow other people's faith, and really wait for the cycle to return. Because once you walk through it, you can be excited again. And confident again in the faith that you know is all you've got. Don't let it be torn down wherever you are. Walk through it if it's difficult. And God will give you the grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, that you are faithful. We could thank you for a lot of things, but that's got to be at the top of the list. You're faithful to us when we're unfaithful. As a matter of fact, the reason that we're here is because we're unfaithful. It's because we needed a Savior. We're here because we know we need you. And we're here because you're always faithful to call us back. No matter where we've been, no matter how our faith is currently being tested, no matter if we're at the top of our game and we're confident maybe making mistakes or if we're so excited we can't contain ourselves and like infants we're just enjoying the spiritual milk we we thank you for all those cycles of our spiritual life and in every one of them you're faithful you continue to teach us through your word you continue to teach us through other believers you continue to teach us through our world I mean, a world that's not even not even Christian. You teach us in that too. There's a lot of students here today, Lord, who are embarking or re-embarking on this thing called education. And um, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be delightful. The wisdom of God actually resides in those secular ivory towers. But they don't reinforce faith. They don't remind those students that Jesus Christ is the way of the truth and the life. And so we pray that in this community, you will help them to hear it, believe it, walk it, and in the dark times, borrow the faith of others. Lord, we're so grateful that You are the Lord of this universe and that you're our personal Lord and Savior. And that no matter where we walk, we know we're walking with you. We thank you for the joy. We thank you for the confidence. And we thank you for the test. May you use every part of our lives to glorify you. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Will you please stand?